Standing before you, I think I am facing three distinct challenges. The first challenge is that, as Dr. Gordon mentioned, I, I spend quite a bit of time these days with a very bright group of 18, 19 year old young men. They have tons of questions. When Dr. Gordon said, well, could you, you know, come, let's, let's make it an evening with six questions. So the first thing I did was I sat down and said, well, what are the most common questions I get? And the list was in the high 20s. So I sat there crossing them off, crossing them off, trying to get it down to six. Challenge number one. Challenge number two, trying to address, at least in some measure, questions that are frankly quite large. Each one of them could be an hour to two lecture. I promise, I will not hold you for an hour or two for each question. However, it means that I need to uh, let you know up front. I'm hoping to share with you something that you can take home, something you can think about. It can't be the complete answer because challenge number two is how to get this into about 35, 40 minutes or so. But I think probably the largest challenge that I'm facing is that Dr. Gordon is a very loving person, has a great deal of praise to offer, and whenever you're introduced, it's so much easier if someone would simply undersell you. <laughs> but when Brian Gordon introduces you, it's like, wow, this guy's amazing. I'd love to meet him one day. But who's he talking about? But okay. We'll give it a shot. So when I think about the questions that my students ask, and they're very thoughtful, one of the ones that comes up all the time is, Rabbi, we are intelligent, modern people. Why do you believe in God? What, what do you bring to the table that would you know, give us any sort of a slightly different perspective? So I usually divide that answer into two parts. There are, really, there are more parts, but two that I'll start with. I say, well, for those of you who are of the strict rationalist bent, so we can go through the classic rational arguments. I'm going to assume that you're fairly familiar, so I'm just going to touch on them, because I'd like to get to something else, which is there's the classic Aristotelian prime mover argument. Right? Where did everything come from? Everything has a source. That source has a source. It goes back, back, back. There must be some source before our physical universe. What created that singularity? Where did it all come from? One approach. Then you have the, uh, the design approach. So, you know, in a uh, simple form, that the universe is simply so complex that if I were to take a uh, group of monkeys, lock them in a room, and give them a bunch of typewriters, what are the chances that they could type out Today's, what's the leading newspaper here? Atlanta Journal. Journal. Yes. Great. What are the chances that they could type out, randomly banging on the keys, the Atlanta Journal, today's Atlanta Journal, without any typos, and actually report the news? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> You've shaken my belief. <laughs> so go through. And the, the argument is designed in the direction of, since the universe is so unbelievably complex, it could happen, it is possible for something so improbable to happen, but it's simply so improbable that would I believe that all the complexity that we see here that is functioning within each one of our bodies right now, let alone the universe at large, could that happen randomly? It's a second approach. There are those who take the approach of looking at Jewish history and saying, we don't belong here. How do we even exist? How does all that happen? And so on and so forth. It's a set of arguments. I'm sure you've heard them at some point or another. We talk about that. But then I point out to my students that that works for some people. I'll be honest with you, I don't have a, a specific singular objection to any of them. But they're also not why I get up in the morning with my belief. For me, there's something else, 
which is that there is more to life than the sorts of proofs that lead A leads to B leads to C leads to D. Because there's all sorts of other knowledge that we all garner from a million tiny points, no one of which is in and of itself a killer argument. No one of which is exactly that which will bring you to the conclusion, but they add up in a big way. There was a book written a number of years ago, it was a New York Times bestseller that I loved, called The Gift of Fear. Part of what the book posited is that we, we sense quite a bit more than we think about with our conscious minds. If you speak to someone, and you know what, they say all the right things, you walk away saying, don't think that person's telling the truth. I can't actually tell you why, I just know it. And I was walking before and I don't know that I heard anything, but I knew that there was someone behind me following me as I walked down the street, and so on and so forth. Our minds pick up a great deal of data that isn't exactly at the level of consciousness, but it sticks with us. Put a different way, how do I know that my wife loves me? Now, the truth is, she could be an undercover agent. And she's been doing an unbelievable job all these years. I bought it, hook, line, and sinker. But in fact, while there is no specific argument I can offer, I can tell you that from a million data points, I know that she loves me. And I know also for myself, is this, is this the obvious rational argument that A leads to B? No, it isn't. But the same way that I know so many other things, and I'm frankly quite comfortable with them, from a lot of data points put together, I can sense looking around the world, looking at my life, looking at the world, looking at so many different things that have happened and say, I believe there's more here. I believe that when I stand and I watch the sunset, I'm not simply watching a massive hydrogen fusion reaction obscured by H2O. There's something else happening there. There's a sense of presence. There's something else happening in my life, there's something else that I'm experiencing that I can't prove to anyone else other than to say, consider for yourselves how it is that you arrive at conclusions. And when I get to the third step, which is like some students who say, that's great, still doesn't do it for me. They say, that's fine, I totally understand. My goal, by the way, is not to convince them, I'm looking to get a discussion going. I'd like for them to think. They have to think for themselves. They're gonna move on out of yeshiva, they're gonna move on to their next steps and their next steps. I'd like for them to have something in mind. The third thing that I ask them to consider, and with this I'll close the first point, is that every one of us lives our lives, risks our lives, on things that are not, that don't possess any absolute proof or evidence. This is the, the uh, post-Kantian in me. As I studied enough German philosophy in college to say, well, I don't even know anything. How do I know I'm here now? How do I know this? How do I know that? It's all part of it. Yet, I got on an airplane last night, and rather than be deeply concerned about the safety of the flight, I went to sleep. I slept right through the flight. And then I got another airplane this morning. And you know what I did? I tried to sleep. It didn't work. But it wasn't because I was anxious about it. And I got in a car to come here. And I ate food at dinner. And how do I know? Could something be wrong with food? Could be, could be, could be. There are so many things that we risk our lives on daily without having absolute proof. Who says, you know what? At least give Hashem the chance that you would give something else in your life that you would risk your life on. Because to ask for absolute proof of the existence of a creator, when I don't ask for absolute proof that this flight will land safely, simply seems intellectually inconsistent. So how far, how much proof do I need? How much evidence do I need to be able to risk my life on something? How much evidence am I looking for to consider the possibility of a presence in my life that I can't absolutely prove, but is worthy of consideration? Number one. Let's move on to number two. 
Tabin of the afterlife. So the question is most often phrased to me as, Rav Judah, how do you know there's an afterlife? To which I respond, I don't. Okay, but why do you believe there's an afterlife? How could you know anything about an afterlife? Ah, that's actually a more on-point question. How could we know anything about something that is afterwards? Now, so I think it's worthy of consideration to consider a little bit about what makes us human. I think of a human being as being a consciousness that then functions as running a remote control car. If you think about like a child with a remote control, so they have a little control and the car drives around. The car, in this case, is the body. The remote control is the brain, and the brain, through the neurons and synapses, sends messages to the body. The same way the remote control sends a message to the car of where to go. Very good. Who's functioning behind the remote control? What's making the remote control happen? That's our consciousness. At this point, one of my students will say something along the lines of, ah, but isn't consciousness just what happens in the synapses? See, is that true? Have you actually seen anything about that? One of the most interesting articles I picked up in the last six months, happy to forward it out at some point. Where'd you go? There you go. Um, so happy to forward it out if anyone would like to see it. Um, it's an article titled, Six Things Physicists Have Made No Progress On. I, I saw that, I was like, oh, this is fascinating. Let's see what that is. Um, so one of those six, which confirmed article after article I've seen, is we don't really seem to know anything about consciousness, per se. We understand very well how the brain functions to make things happen in the body. That's fantastic, amazing work. But where is consciousness? On the front end, there's a, uh, an embryo, goes to the blastocyst stage, zygote, or zygote to blastocyst, moving on, moving on, and it begins to form as a fetus. At some point, consciousness enters the scene. Exactly where, exactly how, don't know. But it gets there, that's the us that is us. And if you've ever been in the room when a person has passed away, you know that there's this difference. They're there and then they're not. They're a shell. Something, something is exited. Now, if that consciousness is not actually dependent in any way on oxygenated blood entering the brain, it's its own existence. Whatever that existence is, we don't know. But, and by the way, I usually get a hand up that says, so Remy, just tell me, if we could actually pin down consciousness, would that shape your belief in the afterlife? My answer is yes, but I don't, it doesn't seem we're anywhere near that. What exactly, where is the us that is us? Where does that come from? How does it exist? It does not seem to depend on anything physical. At which point, when that consciousness separates from the body, and this becomes the basis of the fundamental Jewish view of the afterlife, if the consciousness continues to exist, it simply isn't in the body anymore. What is it conscious of? Well, several things. First of all, what did I do in my life? for good, for bad. So imagine if a person is able to be aware in a way that they were never aware until now. They have a consciousness of everything my life amounted to, every decision I made without any filter, no way to downplay it. That means that, unfortunately, that kid that I bullied in third grade, I'm seeing exactly what happened with him, exactly what he was feeling, where that led him in life, unfortunately not always the best place. I'm also seeing how much the kindness that I made for somebody else in seventh grade where did that go? Where's all the impacts of my life? Fully conscious. Conscious of those who are dear to me. Conscious of Hashem. It's all about consciousness, though. That's when the Rambam writes that our, uh, our experience after death is nothing physical to it. That's because the body's left behind. And what's going on is the consciousness itself. 
in this next stage. I'll conclude this part with a, uh, a, a, a metaphor that's brought at the beginning of the third chapter, the third section of a three-part work on the laws of mourning, M-O-U-R, uh, mourning called Geshe or Tukhachinsky. In the beginning of this third section, he gives a parable. The parable is that there are twins in the womb. One twin is the believing twin, one twin, one twin is the more doubting twin. The believing twin says to his brother, did you know that after we spend this time here, we move on to a whole new life? Doubting twin says, what are you talking about? How do you even know that? First one says, no, it's true. We no longer, that we see in a different way, and we no longer eat through here. And I'm told that it's an incredible experience when we eat through here. His brother says, I don't know where you get this from. He <laughs> said, you understand, we no longer live in amniotic fluid. It's a whole different existence. And there's movement you can't even imagine. This is all I cannot imagine. You're right, because it doesn't happen. Everybody knows we live nine months, if you give a nice long life, but sometimes only seven or eight, unfortunately. And we all exit into the void. Now, first brother says, do you believe in the mother? He says, no, I do not believe there's some all-encompassing mother who's taking care of us all time. That's not a thing. And then the mother goes into labor. And the believing child is born. And his brother in the womb hears the screams and says, oh, he's dying. It's terrible. <laughs> However, says Kukatinsky, we all know is that what they would think, what we think of as birth, is their conception of death. That the baby has died, it's gone out. And we say, oh, Basata, it's a birth. He's all the same thing. He says, at the end of this life, there's something that we call a death. But from the perspective of Jewish tradition, it's just the next birth. And at that point, how long is that life? We think of a life as 70, 80, 90, God willing, 120. We look at nine months as very short. They think of nine months as being a full term. And then this is the next thing. How long is the next? Well, don't know, but we'll find out. Let's go on to three. Torah contribution to happy marriage. Oh, this is a favorite. I could go on for quite a while about this. Um, I'm just going to stick to a, uh, a core point. Um, actually, two core points. So, Rosalavichik, at the beginning of his work, Lonely Man of Faith, notes that the beginning of the book of Genesis, the book of Bereshit, gives not one but two different models of the creation of man and woman. There are differences, however. In the first one, man and woman are created at the same time. In the second, they're created separately, right? First, there's Adam. And then he starts, he looks around, he's lonely, and, he, and Eve is separated off. By the way, anybody who tells you that Eve is uh, Adam's rib, so it's really, it's a put down, we owe that to the King James edition of the Bible. Uh, the word Selah in Hebrew, look at like Selah and Mishkan, means a side. Seemingly conjoined twins. They're four people put together. But the idea that woman comes from man's rib, that's not ours. In any event, so <laughs> the, um, the point is, in the second edition, or the second version, there's Adam, he's lonely, he looks around, and then there's Eve. Number two, in that second version, in the first version, they're just called man and woman. Second version, they have names, Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava. There are a few other differences, but to focus right now on, on those. So Soledadchik says, look, two possibilities. You could say, two different authors, two different stories. That's not his take, it's not my take either. He says, however, you could also look at this as two different dimensions of what it is to be in a committed relationship. There is, in the first chapter, a utilitarian relationship. One of the other distinctions between the first chapter and the second chapter of Rishi is that in the first chapter, Adam and Eve are given a directive. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and conquer it. And he explains it doesn't mean conquer like sword and shield conquer. It means conquer, go develop technologies. 
figure out how to withstand storms, how to build washing machines, how to do things in a better way. They have a directive. Chapter 2, no directive at all. Chapter 2 just says loneliness. So he says, what is this? He says, there's Adam and Eve 1, i.e., Adam and Eve of chapter 1, and there's Adam and Eve 2, Adam and Eve of chapter 2. Adam and Eve 1 have a utilitarian relationship. It's important. It's two people getting together and saying, we have a plan. I'd like to do something. And I do it better with you, either because, A, I just need somebody to do it with. Can't move this stressor by myself. It could also be, there are things that I could use your help with. You're different than me. You have talents I don't have. You're good with heights, you can climb the ladder. I'm very good at fixing paint. I'll hold the ladder, and I'll hand you buckets. Together, we'll get it done. And the quintessential example, which is what the Torah actually uses, is pruru, be fruitful and multiply, which, until quite recently, usually required a man and a woman together. So, okay, that will be a joint project, and we will, we will raise them together. That's chapter one. But chapter two is something very different. In chapter two, there's no directive. What you have are names, and you have loneliness. Because Adam and Eve, too, are looking for something totally different. They're looking for existential companionship. This is not about a project. Adam and Eve, one, in a way, are business partners. They have something they want to do, and they will do it together, and they'll do it better together. Adam and Eve, two of chapter two, are looking for something completely different. They're looking for someone to see them, understand who I am. I am lonely, and I want to be seen. In that sense, people, we all wear masks. We walk around the world with a mask on, saying, I want you to see the best me. And then you meet somebody, and you have that magic conversation at some point where you say, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but, and then you say something. Now, if the person laughs at you, posts on the internet, makes fun of you, you get as far away as you can. However, if the person says something amazing, like, oh, me too. You too? Are you laughing at me? Definitely not. Or, well, it's not your best side, but you know what I do. And there's this game of slowly, slowly revealing ourselves. Until at one point you say, you really see all of me. Why are you still here? <laughs> the answer is because I love you, and you know what? You see all of me. Are we the only two people who have ever felt this? I don't think so. They make movies about it. But it does feel different. You see me as a person. And then what happens? Right? That's the, the early stage. And we go on, and God willing, we're blessed with many decades together. But we also have a tendency to get lost in that Adam and Eve one utilitarian life. There's so many things to do. Kids and jobs and communities, so many things, that it becomes two people running in parallel, trying to keep checking with each other and get things done. And what happens when, six months in, two years in, 10 years in, somebody's really busy, comes home, and partner says, you know, I want to share what you said about my day. I'm on a crazy deadline. Can we talk about it tomorrow? Sure. We can definitely talk about this tomorrow. And maybe they do. It happens again, it happens again. And at a certain point, there just needs to get dropped. And all of a sudden, the mask is coming slowly back on. You don't totally see, we're working together, but you don't really see everything that's going on with me because I haven't revealed it, or the last time I revealed it, I got burned. So I'm going to hold my cards a little bit closer. And there's increasing loneliness. We're slowly actually explaining it. The book is not a book about relationships. It's actually about being lonely and God, and it's an existential work. But what, what we take from this very much is that there are always really four of us under that hubbub. There's Adam 1 and Eve 1, 
There's Adam II and Eve II. There are two separate marriages going on in parallel all the time. And if the early courtship time often involves a whole lot of, tell me about your day, tell me everything about it. I want to know everything. And when you're done, tell me more. Because it's a lot about Adam and Eve too. Real life is often the, the travels of Adam and Eve one, who speak very loudly. If you don't pay the electric bill, they turn off your electricity. And if you don't brush your kid's teeth, you get a dental bill. The world of Adam and Eve one speaks loudly. Adam and Eve two speak in a whimper. It's okay. It's all right, it's, it's fine. Don't worry about it, honey. It's all good. But it isn't all good. And there needs to be time lavished on Adam and Eve too to be able to see each other and continue to be seen and have that special sense. I can go on with this for a while. I'm going to cut it there. Um, I will just leave you with one sort of extra note going back to the first question, which is that the Torah has set up a way in which our human relationships are deeply instructive of our relationship with Hashem. I would never say to my wife, if let's say she embarrassed me at the table. She doesn't, thank God, but let's say she did. And I was hurt, and I could not understand, how could she do that? How could she do that? Would my next phrase ever be, ah, she's hurt me badly? My wife doesn't exist. No, she exists. I just, we had something wrong happen there. Why would I then go to, something wrong has happened in my relationship with Hashem. Hashem hurt me. Therefore, I think Hashem doesn't exist. Is that actual, does that actually follow? Or is it possible that every relationship is going to have its times that feel closer, its times that feel a little bit further, times of hurt, times that are really hard to understand why the other is doing what they're doing. But we have a relationship with Hashem. And in that relationship, there are going to be ups, there are going to be downs, there are going to be times of needing to be closer, times where I really I want to reveal myself. For me, that's Yom Kippur. When I say, I did this, I did this, I did this, that's me taking off the mask and saying, Hashem, okay, here I am. And Hashem says, I know, I saw you all along. <laughs> I say, okay, well, you see me and you're still good with that? I'm still good with that. I love you. Gotcha. Anyway, let's go on to the fourth. Um, oh, good, okay. Huge topic. I just want to put out one thing as a start of the thought. The Torah and egalitarianism. It's a very charged topic. There are many ways in which we go. And I'm going to focus away from specifics of Jewish law and exactly those pieces to note something important, which is that the Western world has a premise that is ever so slightly different than I think the Jewish premise in looking at ourselves and our society. Now, if you imagine when they launch a satellite, if you launch a satellite and you're trying to hit a massive planet, but you launch it just a little bit off, you know, like a quarter of a millimeter, over the course of all those hundreds of millions of miles, you will miss an entire planet because that little bit just keeps going off track. When you have a different premise that's taken by Judaism versus the Western world, and you follow that premise out thousands of years of development and practice, you can end up in a very different place. The specific premise that I'm talking about here is what is the, the I say, the, the centerpiece or the, the focal point around which life revolves? We are Westerners, or we're living in the Western world. So as Westerners, the society that we live in, the culture we live in, has a very simple premise. The purpose of life, and it's a fine premise, by the way. My Western side is very drawn to this premise. I'm a little bit ambivalent about the whole Jewish-Western thing on this. But the Western premise is life revolves around my own personal satisfaction, or really more actualization. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's why I'm here. And so to that end, 
every one of us is entitled to that pursuit of happiness, and it should be the case that regardless of, you name it, religion, gender, age, color, it doesn't matter. All these things, orientation, all these things should lead us to, I can do anything that I want to do, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, because my life is about self-actualization, and I find that to be a very attractive premise. That's what the world revolves around. Except that Judaism doesn't make that assumption. The Jewish assumption is that we are all born a part of something that we revolve around. We are a part of something beyond us. We're pieces in a puzzle. It's not that it goes around us. We're born into something. It's why I often say to my students that basically Judaism is the mafia, because once you're in, you can't get out. And you, you want to get out. I don't, I don't really agree with this. OK, well, so now you're just a Jew who doesn't agree with this. Good luck with that. Right? Wishing you well. But the fact is that our lives, we're born with responsibilities. We get privileges over time. You say, well, nobody asked me if I wanted this. No, we didn't. You just got it. We're born with a set of responsibilities to something beyond us, and are, are meant to live our lives toward that something else. Now, if the goal is a larger project than any one of us, you're going to have a whole bunch of team members with different roles. If I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, not a football player, I've never been a football player, actually can't even throw a football. But if I were to show up, let's say I was, at a Super Bowl next weekend, and said, you know what? I identify as a wide receiver. <laughs> no, sir, actually, you're on the line, you have a job to play, and you're built for this job, or you've been, you've been tasked with this job, but I just actually want to really run my own play. I want to go do something else. That's lovely, but you have a position here. I didn't ask for this position, but that's the position that the coach gave you, and that's the position that you're supposed to play. And now we can have a conversation, and that's what that's the part I'm not going to. There's a great conversation to be had. It's complex, it's sensitive, and it's painful about like, well, why, why is this my position, and why is this my position? And it runs across all different areas. But just to understand from the get-go, that Judaism isn't working by the same rules or the same assumptions as our society. Our society is assuming that life is about a person, and I, there's no reason why you should be able to tell me what I can and can't do as long as it doesn't hurt you. Let me go and do that. And that is a very fair and reasonable assumption in our world. It's just not the Jewish assumption. The Jewish assumption is assuming that we're a part of something that requires that tasks us with roles, and assumes that we are dedicated to something beyond ourselves, and then we can struggle with, well, why was that the case? So I'm going to leave that right there with a little semicolon. It's a lot more to be said, but certainly not in 35 minutes. Okay. Um, ah, good. So, yeah, I always think the answers are going to be quick. They're not that quick, but okay. Um, Rabbi, Rajuna, why is it a problem? Why does it work on Shabbat for me to turn on a light switch? And so, oh, actually, using the wrong term. This isn't about work at all. No, God worked for six days and then rested the seventh day. I find that actually turning on the lights makes my life better. Certainly, it's, uh, it's not hard work. But maybe back in the day, you had to let a fire, and you started gathering wood and sparks, and that's a big deal. This is not a big deal. So that's not what the Torah says. The word work is actually a different word in Hebrew. It's avodah. The term used about Shabbat is a specific term called melacha. Melacha is a term that's found in two and only two contexts in the entire Torah. One is in Shabbat. God creates the world, does melacha, and then stops doing melacha, and therefore the Jewish people will do melacha all week, but will not do melacha on Shabbat. And the magic question is, what's melacha? So, coming up in, starting in two weeks from now, we're going to have this slew of, of Torah portions that only an architect could love. 
If you are an architect, I am so happy for you. You just got basically, I guess, one-tenth of the Torah dedicated to you. I am not an architect. And I look at it, it's like over and over again, all the design plans of the tabernacle, the portable temple. Okay. So uh, sometimes we call it a porta temple. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> so fine. But the uh, so building the Mishkan. And the word malacha comes up over and over again. The malacha done by the blacksmiths and the dyers and the stone cutters and and we start to pull out and say, oh, malacha means creative activity. And now it makes a whole lot more sense. Because to say it's work is to say that Hashem for six days, six periods of time, Hashem was creating and creating. By the end of the sixth day, Hashem said, wow, between the blue whale and the platypus with all the leftover parts, I am exhausted. What I want to do Friday night is kick back in my infinitely soft armchair and take an infinitely aged scotch and enjoy. Except that that doesn't make any sense for an infinite being to be tired. It's no more work for Hashem to make the blue whale and make the entire universe as to make nothing. That doesn't, that doesn't fit theologically or philosophically. So what is it? It's Hashem is creative for six days, and then leaves the seventh day and says, oh, this will be a day for just letting things be, seeing them as they are. And therefore, the task of the Jewish people then is, for six days, go be creative, go control the world, go make things happen. And then on the seventh day, let it be, pull back. And so, is turning on a light switch work? Definitely not. Is it creative? Incredibly creative. The room is full of light. And as a former synagogue rabbi, was I going to work on Saturday? I absolutely was. And if I told my congregation, I'm very religious. I don't work on Saturday. You know what they tell me? Then you're not working on Monday either. <laughs> it's not about work, it's about creativity. Moving on. Good. Um, ah, how could an ancient law relate to a microwave? And I'm going to put an addendum onto this, which is that anybody knows something about old, the old tradition of Judaism that ended up as the books called the Mishnah and then the Talmud. So this was meant to be an oral tradition. It's passed down, it's applied, and so on and so forth. Um, but isn't it just a big game of telephone? How could it have anything in the world to say about modern technology, such as a microwave? And how do we know we even got it right? Like, what if it got passed down along the way somebody just said it wrong? So the truth is that a game like telephone, the children's game, has a few distinct differences from oral tradition. The first is that in telephone, you only get to say it once, because that's the way it is. In this tradition, actually, it was taught over and over and over again, and only the best students are the ones who carried it forward. But second, in the game telephone, your goal is to end up with a silly message at the end. That's what we want. Here, we have, no, we don't want a silly message. We actually want to get the concept. And third, in the game telephone, it's just verbal. In Judaism, this is a, a lived tradition. In other words, no one actually taught me, Judah, when you make a kiddush on Friday night, you pick up the cup as such, you fill it with, they never told me that you fill it with grape juice or wine, I just saw that. You see it and you live it. I've never seen anyone who tried to wrap to fill in on their leg, because you just don't do that. You put it on your arm, why? Because that's what everybody does. So certain things are seen and carried forward. That's one aspect. But there's a deeper aspect which is that what's going on in the oral tradition, this is where we get to the microwaves and we get back to the accuracy, is that it's a series of principles. Those principles were written down in the form of cases because they needed to be. In general, if you're ever playing Jewish historical jeopardy and there's a question that has anything to do with what went wrong in Jewish history, 50-50, if you answer the Romans, you'll be right. <laughs> so give it a try sometime. So what happens? The Roman, under Roman oppression, there's a risk that we're going to lose some of these principles that are being passed down orally. 
Oral tradition is a much, much better way to explain a complex behavior. If I try to write down for you how to, let's say, tailor a men's suit. So I say, okay, swatch of fabric A, fold it along dotted line B, and then fold it again along line C. You would end, I would end up with what I always end up with. Whenever I try origami, it's always a hat. <laughs> I made a hat. I wanted to make a suit, but I made a hat. It's always the same. Now, what happens, though, if I went into a tailor shop for two hours, not even a day, not even a week, just two hours, and watched them do it? I'd get most of it. The truth is, personally, the way I learned most of Shabbat, I was not raised uh, specifically Shabbat observant. I went to a friend's house, Ira, with Ira Credit, and basically just spent a few Shabbat. So in the afternoon with Ira, Ira was mostly telling me, oh, you can't do that, oh, you can't do that. I'm like, oh, what do I do, right? But it didn't take very long to learn, because complex behaviors are far, far better taught by showing. If I want to show you how to shoot a basketball, watch me. You'll learn it really quickly. Try to describe it in writing, it's impossible. It's not going to work out. It was meant to be oral. What happens? Pesky Romans, right? Filled in the answer. So what did we do? We took those principles, applied them into cases. The art of study now is to look at a case, extract from it the principle, and then apply the principle. And so there's, it's now a two-step process instead of a one-step process. So we look at a microwave and say, what is a microwave? Well, what is the definition of cooking? Is cooking defined as exposing the food to a heat source, in which case a microwave is not cooking? Or is cooking defined as taking something from a raw state into a now changed state, which will never return? The egg in the microwave will never go back to being clear. It'll be white. And the chicken will never go back to being that weird, translucent pink color. It's now a piece of cooked chicken, and so on and so forth. And so we're defining what's the nature of cooking. What's the nature of x, y, or z? Extract the principle, and now it's just a question of application. And getting back around to how do we know we got it right? There's a fabulous comment uh, made by the Ritbo, one of the lead medieval commentators in the Talmud. He points out the following. He says, do you really think that Hashem had this like perfect total picture of Jewish law out there, handed it to Moshe, and said, now pass this down, and then one day, we will die, we'll get up there and find out the good news is you've got 64% of it correct, <laughs> but you lost the rest. He says, no, no, that's not what's going on. It's a little bit more like this, and I'm just I'm taking it with those words and putting it into a, my own um, example, which is if I turn to my kids and say, kids, I'm making dinner. I'm gonna let you choose what we're making for dinner, but there are some things that are out of bounds. Chocolate is not an acceptable answer for what we're having for dinner. That's out, right? It has to have some protein, some carbs, some vegetables, so here are your choices. We could do salmon, broccoli, and, uh, and potatoes. We could do burger fries and salad. Or we could do, I don't know, do like a uh, pasta dish with uh, some other vegetables, roasted vegetables, and so on. What do you want? They talk among themselves. They vote. And after they're voting, they say, okay, Abba, we want the salmon, potatoes, and broccoli. I say, you got it. I go, I make the whole dinner. Once I put it on the table, can they now say, on second thought, we think we want to go with the burger fries and say, no, 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 no. I was fine with any of these options until you decided, but now you made the decision. Says the Ritva, there are a series of acceptable possibilities on any debated Jewish law. It's not that there's some sort of primordial preconcept that it has to be this, and then we're guessing at it and hoping we got it. Rather, there's a set of principles, there are ground rules. Hashem says, okay, take these ground rules, apply them to the various cases, and as long as you're working within the system, whatever conclusion you get to, I'll go with. And then you're responsible to live with that. 
So could the nature of Jewish intellectual history have gotten to a slightly different conclusion on this or that? Could we have followed Shammai? Could we have followed Abayi? Could we follow all the people in the Talmud? I feel bad for them. But the ones that like, we never follow, or just about never follow? Yes, we could have. It isn't the way that we decided. And once we decided, we went down that path. But it didn't have to be that way. This was a cogent, reasonable, alternative approach. It's just not the one we went with. And so we don't need to be guessing at something that was thousands of years ago, because it's our role, it's our partnership in this, to be applying this. Good. Ah, OK. So I think we're up to the bonus question. Right? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Bonus question is, uh, what about seeing Hashem in our lives? Right? Living, living a little bit more spiritually. So I'm just going to give you a series of steps. I actually made myself a, a note here for this one, uh, just not to want to forget it. Uh, which is that, again, this may not work for all of you, but it's a takeaway, and it's, it's, it's the bonus one. First step, I believe, in feeling a greater sense of relationship with Hashem or a more spiritual life, actually, we need to define spirituality. Anything you can't define, basically, you don't know what it is. So, if people define spirituality in all kinds of ways, my definition that I work with, spirituality is having a personal, tangible, or I should say personal, forget tangible, personal relationship with the infinite. So how does one develop a personal relationship with the infinite? I think step one is to recognize that we are more than our bodies. This is going back to the, the earlier piece about the remote control car and consciousness. This is my body. It's so funny. When we talk about ourselves, we say, me. Why don't I say, me? And actually, the truth is, I really mean what's behind the brain, what's behind the remote control, the consciousness. That's the real me. If a person had a transplant of this, a transplant of that, transplant all the parts. They're still them as long as they have that consciousness. That's what makes them them. It's not the individual parts. So the first thing is to recognize I am more than or different than my physical body. This is a fabulous avatar. Your avatars tend to be a little bit better looking than mine, but that's fine. I don't, I don't look at her that much, and you have to look at me, so that's your problem. Now, step one. Step two. Making a life that is outwardly focused. It's, well, these are all related to things that we've talked about so far, which is, is my life about me? Or am I a part of something greater? It's a different way of living. When you feel that your life day to day is a part of something much greater and bigger, you also become more outwardly direct, better able to see that which is beyond your own limits. Step two. Step three. Um, I am a big fan of rationalism, and I tell my students this. I lead with rationalism. It is my primary go-to tool. I am, however, aware that the lead rationalism suffers from two major Achilles heels. Not flaws, but Achilles heels. Achilles heel number one is that your, your rationality and your logic is only as good as it is. Meaning you could do one of those math equations where you put like all these things on the board, and if there was one little thing that was wrong in there, the conclusion is three equals two. So it has to be perfect. For rationalism to work, it has to be really work itself out. You could make a false step, and then the whole conclusion is off. You have to be aware of that. But number two is, Rationalism is not particularly good at things outside of the universe. So to the question of what came before the Big Bang, and what is after death, and what, which is not, it's not a good tool for that. So recognizing that is step three. Step four is recognizing that just like I said Adam and Eve too speak in a whisper, Hashem also speaks in a whisper. The assumption that you could, let's say, fly to Israel, get off the plane, go to the hotel, and there it is, Western Wall, God spoke to me, is the same assumption that I think many people have when they go to synagogue in Yom Kippur and expect this is going to happen. We're going to open the ark, and God's going to come out and say, you were very good this year. 
But that is something of a cross between like Santa Claus and the game show host. It's not, it's not real. That doesn't happen in Yom Kippur. Instead, what do we actually say in Yom Kippur? We say that in the Yom Kippur prayer, that like highlight, kind of scary one, discussion for another time. But we say in there that Hashem speaks in a still, small voice. It's taken actually from the Book of Kings, a whole prophecy that, uh, or a vision that uh, Eliyahu and Abi, Elijah the prophet had, that Hashem is not in the storm, Hashem is not in the earthquake, Hashem is not in the fire, Hashem is in a still, small voice. You don't find Hashem speaking to you loudly. It's much more in a quiet moment, listening for a whisper. So I personally find that much more, I'll go outside, I'll go to the desert, I'll sit for a while. And the whisper comes along eventually. Now, if you actually hear a whisper, you might want to call a doctor. Um, however, if it's like a whisper, we've got more to talk about here. But understand that a relationship with Hashem is not something that hits you over the head. It's subtle, it comes in a whisper. The next part is to then look for it. Now, it could be looked for if you're thinking about, um, well, both Dr. Warren's, but um, Dr. Brian Gordon's comment about Hashkacha. Um, about finding the little things that you say, you know, I'm not sure if that was Hashem, but it might have been. Was that you? Was that you? That, that worked out really well. Keeping your eye open for those little moments. Say so that might have been a bit of communication, that might have been a message, that might have been a bit of presence. And the last one is to try talking with Hashem. And when I say talk with Hashem, I have tremendous respect for, and I do three times a day, four times on Shabbat and Yom Tov, I die. I say the prayers, out of the prayer book. But understand, the prayer book is formal prayer. That was formalized at the end of the first temple period, seeing that the temple is going to be destroyed and we're going to be without our sacrificial service, so on and so forth. So sacrifice is one of the topics I, I crossed off the list. It would be fun. It's just too much for tonight. Um, but so we have the formalized prayer. What do people do before that? So the original form of prayer is informal prayer. It's when you just talk to Hashem. That's what you see. That's what Avram does. That's what Hannah does. They're all using informal prayer. There's no reason why having formal prayer as a part of our tradition, which I find to be incredibly helpful and deep and worth discussing, there's no reason why that should exclude informal prayer. So I take every use of basically modern technology and things that I'm used to. I am very used to talking to someone that I can't see every time I get in the car. Because I call my mother on speakerphone. I call my wife on speakerphone. And then when I hang up the phone, I just don't dial this time. And I start talking. Hashem, I want to catch you up. Here's what's going on with my eldest. Oh, you know, my wife and I had a discussion with this the other day, and I'm still thinking about it. I'm a little bit perturbed. And I'm worried about this. Oh, and I want to thank you. That worked out so great. Really appreciate that. I probably dialed it in that sense somewhere between 8 and 20 times in a given day. Sometimes it's as little as a thank you or a wow. And often, it's a longer conversation. And we are blessed to live in a time and an era where if you are driving or walking down the street and you're talking, and they can't see that you have no earbud in, you look totally normal. So go for it. The more conversation that I have with Hashem, the more that I bring Hashem, I really invite Hashem into my life, I'm just all the more aware. That's really Ravina Bukhaya's idea of Hashkacha Pratidu, divine involvement, is the more that you invite Hashem, the more that you look for Hashem to be there, the more that I shall enter. And if the message you're giving is, I actually would rather keep you at arm's length, Hashem says, fine, keep me at arm's length. It's up to you. I personally would rather have Hashem in my life. So we talk quite often. And I invite in, and I look for presence, and I'm aware of being a part of something more, and all these pieces. So 
I have no idea because one thing I should have noted up front is that um, my family is like Russian going all the way back. And I have no like Yekish blood in me. I have no idea of the passage of time. So I actually have no idea where I am on that like 35 to 40 minute schedule. But it is what it is, and that's just kind of dealing with me. One of the things that I, I had a very short list of things that were really important to me when I was dating and marrying. So a few things that were core, was somebody who wanted to have a family with me, I was interested in somebody who was going to move to Israel with or without me, because I didn't want her to look at me one day and say, you're slapping me here. So I was like, okay, so then we're not going to do that. And I figured anybody who told me I'm open to Aliyah was basically saying, we're going to talk about it and then live in Tina next to my parents. It's like, I didn't want that. So one of the other things about this was not super punctual, because I knew I would drive her crazy. So I should have warned you, I didn't. I had no idea how long it's been, but it's been a pleasure. Uh -huh.